So I noticed that Stephen was challenging you to stay awake while I'm preaching. I will be keeping an eye on him, <laughs> particularly. <laughs> so before I uh, get into our message time this morning, this is the book that I am uh, highlighting this week. This is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and it's uh, by Thomas Brooks. I will note, first of all, there are no pictures, so that's unfortunate. Um, but it is smaller, at least this way, um, but not really. So uh, this book is an excellent one that I found to be very encouraging in my own soul. As you can tell by the title, uh, he's talking about the challenges, the temptations, the attacks that the enemy makes on us in our own heart. I'm supposed to announce that children are dismissed for children's church. Preschool through second grade. Excellent. You're welcome. <laughs> so the enemy makes certain attacks uh, on us. Sometimes he might tempt us this way. Sometimes he might lie to us about uh, another, uh, that this thing, all oh, that sin, all oh, that's not really bad, or God doesn't really care about that area, or, uh, you know, you'll never make it, so you may as well give up, or there are a million temptations, a million types of uh, attacks, devices that Satan brings against us. And so this book is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And I would, uh, uh, I just want to point out a couple of them here that uh, he's, he's talking about, you know, these are some examples of of the attacks, the devices that Satan might use to draw our soul to sin. Uh, one is by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. That uh, the enemy tempts us with this particular thing, but he, he hides from us the fact that it's going to snag us and, and snare us and, and endanger us. Um, another way that he does the same thing is by painting sin with virtue's colors. Making sin look like virtue. Oh, no, it's actually a good thing for me to do that. It's a very loving thing or whatever, right? Painting sin in virtue's colors. And uh, this one particularly I, I dwelt on for a long time. He, he tempts us, he lures us to sin by persuading the soul that repentance is easy and that therefore the soul need not scruple or worry about sinning. Oh, it's no big deal. You can just repent later. And so the, the point that he's arguing there is that the enemy uh, would, would have us believe that repentance is just easy. It's no problem. It's, uh, it, it's simple for us, and therefore you can sin down this road a little farther. Don't worry, you can just repent when you get far enough down there. And, of course, that's the attack of the enemy. So, uh, and then, after having presented each of these devices, each of these uh, tactics of the enemy, then he gives you know, five or ten different ways we can battle against those. Things to keep in mind, things we need to remember uh, in order to battle against that kind of attack of the enemy. Now, I will encourage you a couple of things. First of all, I notice here that Thomas Brooks, the author, lived in the 17th century, okay? So he did not write like you and I read, okay? And he uh, will require a little bit of effort to read what he's saying, but I want to encourage you that each remedy, for example, uh, I'm looking, this, uh, these remedies are about a page or perhaps two pages total. So what I encourage you to do with this book is just start at the beginning and work slowly through it. 
It's kind of like a daily devotional almost, something that you could read a page or two a day, and that's about all you'll want because you'll be sweating and, and breathing hard by that point. But it also, there's so much in there to think about, to chew on. And so I encourage you to uh, pick up this book back here. I just, uh, I just read it recently within the last four or five months and found it to be greatly encouraging and very pastoral and very practical, getting right down to the nuts and bolts of the way temptation works or the way the lies of the enemy work on our souls. So I, I uh, commend this book to you, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And so uh, that will be available in the back, and uh, other books are available as well. Apparently not Tozer's book. That one's gone, but we will get more of those, and so you can, uh, you can pick up on one of those later on. If you would open your Bible to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, I'm going to uh, read from a passage in uh, this portion of Scripture that is, obviously it's the book of Acts, it's a story, it's a narrative of how Paul was traveling by Ephesus, and he didn't want to stop and go into town. He didn't want to get hung up there and spend a lot of time. He was trying to make progress to get back to Jerusalem on time. And so as he was traveling by, he summoned the elders to him, and they actually met on a beach, and uh, and they talked. And so there's this great message that he gives, and uh, I want to read it for us, beginning in verse 18 of Acts chapter 20. And when they came to him, that is the Ephesian elders, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public And from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have, that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's 
silver, or gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must keep the weak, help the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we approach you together this morning and worship you. We pause from our everyday lives and from the things we normally pursue and maybe think about to quiet our hearts before you and recognize who you are. Recognize you are our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. We praise you for that redemption. We praise you for Jesus and what he has done for us. We praise you for him giving his own life. After having lived a life of obedience, he gave it up to redeem sinners like me. And so I rejoice in Jesus and I praise you for Christ. I praise you also that you've given us your word, that you've communicated to us. I praise you also that you have given us the body of Christ as our family. I think we get to be together to study your word, that you work in us and among us, that you work through your church. We praise you for the fact that you have put us within the body of Christ. With all the different gifting, with the different roles that we play, you have designed the body of Christ. You've designed the local church to strengthen us, to build us up, to protect us, to guide us, nurture us, comfort us. So we rejoice. And Father, this morning as we come to your word and talk about this topic of how your your church, the local church is structured, we ask that you would speak to us from your word about the importance of of the local church in our own lives. We commit this time to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in uh, numerous different passages uh, this morning. And uh, so I'm kind of going to be all over in the New Testament. I was asked this week, I received a text, hey, what, what passage are we preaching on this week? And it was hard to narrow it down because we're talking about the topic of Elders and elders in the church. And that's not just because I like to talk about myself. I do indeed like to talk about myself quite a bit, as you're well aware. But uh, this month we are focusing on the church, the local church, and how God has designed the local church and what role it is to play in our own lives. And so 
Uh, we talked about church essentials last week, and we spent a very brief time talking about a large subject uh, last week. But this week, we're going to be talking about elders. And next week, the plan is to talk about deacons. And then the plan after the week after that is to talk about membership, what it means to be a saint in the body of Christ. And then uh, the week after that, Lord willing, we're going to talk about how it all works together in the design that God has for the church to accomplish his purposes in this world. And so that's a kind of a lofty goal, I realize. This morning, we're going to uh, talk about elders. Why is this topic important right now? Why is the topic of the local church important in the stage we find ourselves in history? Well, as, as I've been reading and learning, as I've been studying, as I've been observing, you can see that there is a desire on the part of the state and they're accomplishing it in large ways to be more and more involved in what we believe, in what we can say, in what we as a church do. That there's a greater reliance that a large portion of the population has upon the state and not upon the church. There seems to be a, a, a shifting of responsibility, a shifting of trust that direction. And so my own personal opinion is that with, uh, with the, the direction our culture and our country have been heading in the last, uh, in the last while, I think the church is going to become ever more important in the life of the believer. The church has always been important in the life of the believer, whether we've realized it or not, whether we've acted upon it or not. The fact is that the church is vital, is crucial for the life of the Christian. But we have lived in such times and we have lived in the kind of circumstances where we can sort of take or leave church, where it's not all that important because we can get most of those needs met somewhere else. I remember when I was uh, going through Bible school and <clears throat> they were talking about trends within our culture, and that was back in the, in the uh, early 90s, and so <clears throat> times have changed even more. But they were saying that there's been a, a growth in our culture in the rise of the local bar and a diminishment of the presence of the local church, and that those two are essentially filling the same gap in many ways. Because the local bar, this was the, uh, the presentation that I was hearing, the bartender, you can go and sit down and uh, talk to the bartender about your problems. And he'll, you know, pour you a beer or a drink or whatever. You sit there and talk and you can share your problems and he may or may not have any kind of advice or maybe he'll just listen. But then someone comes and sits next to you who's not entirely unlike you and now you can kind of commiserate together and you can find support. And so you have this, this thing happening in the culture where the local bar, the neighborhood bar becomes more and more important and they're finding that need of counsel, of sharing, of fellowship, People are finding that need to be met in the local bar and not the local church as much. Well, that was years and years ago, and I don't have any idea the, the, <clears throat> the state of the local bar in our, in our culture now. I don't, I don't know. But uh, there, there is that sort of mentality that we in our day can have our needs met elsewhere. The consumer mentality says that if I like the burgers that I get at one restaurant, uh, drive through you know, a fast food restaurant, I can go get my burger there, but I like the fries better from over here. So I'm going to get my burger here, and I'm going to go over there and get my fries, and then I have the kind of meal that I like, right? I get to make those sorts of choices, and, and that's kind of the life that we live. We have those options. What you watch on your phone, what you watch on your TV, what you, 
We have so many options and so many choices that I think what's going to happen with our culture going the direction it's going is that Christians will realize more and more we need one another. We need the local church to provide protection for us, to provide strength for us, to provide discipleship for us, to teach us, to help us, to comfort us. We're going to need the church more and more. If you think about the uh, church behind the Iron Curtain, when it was illegal in the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe for there to be churches where they were very, very closely guarded and protected, you know, you had to have certain papers to have a church and whatnot. Those Christians clung together because they knew the culture was against them. And they knew that the people they worked with were largely going to be against them. Their neighbors were largely going to be against them. Now, that, that's a context of persecution. But I'm saying the similar principle applies in our time, that as, as Christianity goes more and more out of fashion, becomes less and less popular, less and less acceptable in our world, and that's the direction it's going, then you're going to find it at work uh, more and more difficult to say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a, a Christian, I believe the Bible. Yeah, I believe it literally. Yeah, I think it teaches this and that. And yeah, you're going to find it more and more difficult to... Um, to uh, speak up in that way. And so we're going to find a greater refuge in the church. And so as we're looking at the church through, through the month of January, that's the purpose. What is the role of the church in our lives? And today we want to look at kind of the structure of the church, not the building, of course. The church is not the building, it's the people. We do get to meet in a building, and we are thankful for that. But we want to talk about the structure that God has put in place for the church. And so today we're going to talk about elders and what role the elders play in the church. If you'll look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, again, there aren't many passages we're going to spend much time in today. But I want to just notice something that's pointed out here in Philippians uh, 1 and verse 1 is how the church is organized. We're asking the question, what, what is an elder? We're t- discussing the office of the elder. Well, in Philippians 1, we're, we're introduced to the idea of the organization of the church. And obviously it's not developed, it's not something that is continued upon, but we, we see these concepts side by side. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three categories of people that he mentions there in verse 1. To the saints who are in Christ Jesus at Philippi, with the overseers, and deacons. So you've got three categories there. You've got a basic structure, a very, very basic structure of how the church is organized. Overseer is a word that is used usually synonymously with elders, with the elders. So you've got the saints, you've got the elders, you've got the deacons. Or you've got the saints and the overseers and the deacons. So there's a, there's a picture, there's an organization uh, in the local church. God didn't just, uh, you know, start saying, saving people and then give them the desire to be together somehow and then say, okay, have fun. Organize that how you want. He actually gave principles. He actually gave some instruction on what the organization of the local church was to be like. And we see a very brief picture of it here. When you've got the, 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 the class of the saints, you've got the, the overseers and the deacons. 
And this plays into, secondly, how the church is led. Not just how the church is organized, but how the church is led. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, I warned you we would be all over the place, and that is indeed the case. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, we have the statement that Paul, writing to Titus, who is his emissary, he's left him on Crete. He's left him on Crete for a particular purpose, and he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he left Titus there with the task of getting things arranged the way they ought to be, to putting into order what remained, and particularly appointing elders in every town. As I directed you. The idea is each of these churches, each town, each church needed to have elders in leadership. They're to be appointed in every town. And of course, this is the practice that Paul himself had when he was uh, planting churches in the book of Acts and Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. This is what he did. They went from town to town appointing elders in each church. That's because there needed to be leadership provided. And that leadership was to be provided by the elders. And so this was uh, the New Testament pattern is the establishment of elders. And you'll notice it's plural. It's not an, el- an, an elder in each church or an elder in each town, but elders plural. So we get the idea from this and other places that the New Testament would have us as churches have a plurality of elders, meaning more than one. And so there's to be a team, there's to be a board, there's to be a council of elders. So we've looked at how the church, very, very basically how the church is organized, how it's led, and then how the church is shepherded. How the church is shepherded. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Okay, and double honor there probably means the honor of the position as well as the honor of payment. And so, um, you know, that, so I'm a staff elder. I get paid uh, for our, my ministry here at the church. And he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. In other words, what does the ruling look like? The ruling looks like preaching and teaching. It's a shepherding task. It's not, a, it's, not an org, it's not primarily an organizational task. There are organizational elements to it and aspects of it. But primarily the shepherding takes the form of preaching and teaching. That might, might surprise us a little bit. But that's the primary method of ruling in a church is by preaching the Bible, by teaching God's Word so that we understand what God would have us know in what God would have us do. And Paul, uh, Paul wrote that in 1 Timothy, but then we have the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13, in verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, that your leaders, what did they do? They spoke to you the word of God. That was characteristic of their leadership. That's what their leadership basically looked like. And then in verse 17, he puts it more st- in stronger terms. 
He says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. The, the leaders, those who are speaking the word of God, that is the elders of the church, they, they are keeping watch over your souls. That's a big task. Keeping watch over your soul. That changes it from, you know, so-and-so is our teacher or so-and-so is our, you know, organizer or, or leader in some way. All of those things involve care of your soul. And so they will have to, we will have to give an account. So you see there's a great degree of weight that plays into this, which is similar to what James would say in chapter 3 and verse 1 when he says, not line- let not many of you become teachers because you will be held to a stricter judgment. And so there's a, there's a great weight, a great responsibility. There's, there's a privilege that comes with it. It's a privilege to teach God's Word. It's a privilege to be in leadership and, and have that responsibility. But there is a very great weight that comes with it. It is shepherding. It is caring for the souls of the congregation. And so it's more than simply teaching. I finished my outline, I close my book, and I sit down or leave. But it's, it's a shepherding. It has involved a very large element of teaching and preaching. That is the means by which we shepherd primarily. But it is a care for your souls. So that's a, that's a broad outline. And we could flesh that out a whole lot more of what the elder's office is like. What, what is he? We want to move on and, and ask a second question. What is he like? What is he like? So let's look at the elder's character, the elder's character. In, these, uh, in this discussion, we find ourselves looking to two main passages, and you're familiar with these, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. You may want to open that up and uh, put a finger there. And then the other one is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And, and so these passages are written in what uh, what we we call the pastoral epistles meaning paul has written to his emissaries who are pastors who are training other pastors there it's about primarily pastoral issues so the pastoral epistles and that is first uh, and second timothy and titus and you can see that in first timothy 3 and in titus chapter 1 we have the basic um, qualifications given of an elder or of an overseer and as we read through that, I actually want to take just a minute and I want to read through 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then I'm going to read through Titus 1, and I want you to notice similarities and differences. The saying is trustworthy, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace 
into a snare of the devil. And then again, looking at Titus chapter 1, and again, pay attention to what's similar and what's different. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we have there, first of all, a list of his personal character. What his personal character is to be like. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be greedy for gain. He must not be a lover of money. He must be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, sober-minded. These are all character traits that have to do with his personal character, what he's like, what his character is. And you can see, of course, that that standard is high. That that standard is very high. And, And elders are aware, we elders are aware of just how short we fall in these different areas. We know our own temper. We know our own heart. And so we, we look at this and, and uh, we have never had an elders meeting where we went through this list and said, yep, that's us. Excellent. Hey, good to go. What's next? Give us, give us a, a bigger challenge. That has never happened in an elder meeting that I've ever been a part of, nor one I've ever, ever heard of. The character traits are demanding. They pierce right down to motivations, right down to our hearts. And so we find ourselves convicted when we fall short. We, we find that, yeah, these may generally be true in these ways, and God has worked in these, these different ways, but in my own heart, I know there's, there's sin in these areas. And so we confess those, and we beg the Lord to continue to work, and we throw ourselves on Christ and what He's accomplished. And these character traits are demanding, and they're high. And we're aware of that. The primary emphasis in these two passages is on personal character, but it's not only that. You'll also see there's an emphasis on relational character. Not just personal character, but in relational character with how we relate to others. So, for example, it must be the husband of one wife. right? So that's a relational aspect. That's about fidelity in marriage. It's about a relationship. He must manage his own household well. Or as Titus says, children, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. It, it goes to how he relates to his family, how he manages his household, how he leads his family. Or in Timothy, Paul will say he must with all dignity keep his children submissive. Because if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If, if he can't take, take care of the microcosm of his household, if he can't manage that well, he, he can't take care of the church. He must not be arrogant. The way we relate with other people, he must not be arrogant. And this is part of the reason that Paul will say in First Timothy, he should not be a recent convert lest he become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Right? There's a, 
there's an examination of relationship with other people and is, is there arrogance in that relationship with other people? Is he a new convert and he thinks, you know, it's taking you guys forever to figure this stuff out. I got it figured out in a year and a half. So what's up with you, right? The arrogance, right? So he says it must not be a recent convert, not a new believer. He must not be quick-tempered, not violent, but gentle, respectable, not quarrelsome, picking fights with people. He must be hospitable. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so you see there's a a large relational uh, aspect. It's an examination of his relational character and how uh, he relates with other people around him, whether it's outsiders, those who are outside the church and, and unbelievers, all the way down to his relationship with his wife, with his kids, with those people he disagrees with. How does he relate to them? There's an aspect of relational character that must be in place. Otherwise, you don't want that person as an elder in the church who, who, who is, you know, egregious in these different areas. So there's a strong emphasis on relational character. So there's personal character qualities that we examine, that we look at, that need to be in place before we uh, put someone in a position of elder, of leader of the church in that way. There are relational aspects because it turns out church is a lot about relationship. And if, if I'm cruel with my children, I'm going to be cruel with you. And if I don't know how to manage my children, I, I won't know how to manage in the church. You see, there's a great correlation between the microcosm of the family uh, and other relationships in the macrocosm of the church. So we have personal character, relational character. And did you notice, reading through that, there's only one required skill. There's only one required skill. Now, if you were to uh, go to uh, a Christian bookstore and uh, look for books on what it means to be a pastor, uh, what to look for in a pastor, maybe you're on a, 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 you know, a, a pastoral search committee or something, or you're contemplating pastoral ministry yourself, or it's just an interest, you will find all manner of characteristics and skills and abilities, not just the personal character aspects or relational character aspects, but he needs to have this skill and that ability. He needs to be like this. He needs to do these things. It's almost like a qualification for a CEO. If you look at many Christian books, that they, they want someone who's a visionary, someone who can really set the pace, someone who can rally people around him, someone who can win over people who disagree, or someone who, can, who, who is great with, uh, with planning how to move forward as a, as a group or whatever. It's almost like an application for a job as a CEO, but we just read what Scripture says about the skill requirements. By the way, I'm not saying those skills are bad skills. Those are admirable and those are desirable and they are useful to God in the local church to have a visionary who is a pastor who can just see and let's go that way and rally the troops. And those are, there's there's a place for those. Those are good characteristics and good desires, but they are not what we read in our passages. There's one biblical requirement. There's one biblical Skill and ability he must have as he must be able to teach. Of all of these character things, of all of these aspects about his own heart and his own character, that's the main emphasis through all of this is what is he like in his personal character, in his relational character, and there is only the one required skill, and that is 1 Timothy 3, 2, that he be able to teach.
That's the only one listed. That's the top priority when it comes to skill, when it comes to ability, is his ability to teach. And we're going to come back to uh, this topic in a little bit. But for now, just keep that in mind that there's the personal character aspect, the relational character aspect. But this one lonely skill, the ability to teach. Let's look thirdly, not just the office of elder or the the character of elder, what the character is like, but, but then thirdly, the elder's responsibilities. What does he do? What does he do? Well, first of all, he oversees. He oversees. I, I pointed out already that uh, the word overseer and elder, they're used largely synonymously in the New Testament. That oversight has to do with, with the care and management, the seeing over of, of things in the church, the oversight of people, the oversight of the church. And so, of course, the, uh, the first responsibility that an elder has is oversight, to oversee what is going on in the church. To, to be the one who's managing it like he manages his household. So when I manage my household, though, um, you know, I may not be the one directly doing every aspect of what goes on in my household, yet I am the one managing it. I'm the one ultimately responsible for how it goes. That's on me as the father. And so likewise, in a similar way for, uh, for the elders, for the overseers in a church. In Titus chapter 1, you noticed that uh, in verse 7, Paul said an overseer is God's steward. God's steward. That's a part of oversight, right? The idea of a steward, we don't really use that word all that much anymore, but the idea of a steward is that a, a, a landowner would travel or go away or he would entrust the care of his business, the care of his property, uh, the care of, of all that was going on. He would entrust that to someone. And he would say, I entrust you to take care of my business. Maybe it's my finances. Maybe it's the the property. Maybe it's all that goes on. It could be all of that. I want you to take care of that as if you were me. I'm stepping away. I'm not here. Manage that for me. And so the steward had great responsibility, had had great oversight over all that was going on in that business. And and, uh, when Paul refers to the overseers as God's stewards, in uh, Titus chapter 1, that's what he's talking about, is that, that God has entrusted the care of the church to overseers, to the elders who have oversight, who are stewards of that church. In other words, they've been given the task of overseeing God's church in his place in Christ's physical absence. He's left stewards, those who are to manage, those who are to care uh, about his church in his physical absence. So first of all, they uh, they oversee. And secondly, they shepherd. They shepherd. You see how there's a different feel to that. To oversee kind of almost sounds a little bit more cold. It sounds a little bit more removed. You know, just I was moving troops or I was observing to make sure the finances were right or I was overseeing. But secondly, a term is used, shepherding. Shepherding. And we... Uh, as elders often refer to ourselves and one another as under-shepherds. Because we realize that we're not the shepherd. We're not the ultimate shepherd. The elders are not the ones who call the shots. We get to decide and we get to determine what is good and right for Parkside to do. Or We realize we are under-shepherds. That we have one shepherd, even Jesus. 
And he's the one directing his church. He's the one telling us which way to go. He's the one telling us which way not to go and what is right and what is good. He's the one protecting us. He's the one feeding us. And he has put stewards in his place to carry that out. And that is us. We are under shepherds. We are those who shepherd. And that's because the oversight involves not just watching over the direction and function of the church, but the personal and spiritual lives of the people within the church. So there's a degree of care. There's a degree of intimacy. You know, we remember Jesus talking about um, shepherding and how he shepherds his, his sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. There's an intimacy. There's a knowledge. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me, he says. So there's a, there's a relational connection. There's a personal connection in that aspect. Peter will say in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 4, this is what he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So I exhort you, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We are to shepherd the flock. We are to exercise oversight in very particular ways and sometimes in very personal ways. There's a shepherding that goes on. And one example of this, and there there are many in the New Testament, but one example comes to mind immediately, and that is in James chapter 5. And verse 14, you're, you're very familiar with this passage. James says, is anyone among you sick? Are you sick? What should you do? He says, is, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So there's, a, there's that kind of personal relationship. There's that kind of personal ministry that would even involve anointing with oil, which is a pretty intimate thing. If you've ever had, if you've ever been anointed with oil, it's, it, it involves a, a close relationship. He says, are you sick? Call the elders, they, the shepherds, let them come and shepherd you. They will anoint you with oil. They will, they will pray with you. It goes on to discuss the confession of sins and there's a close relationship in that regard. So there's a, there's a shepherding element, a large shepherding element, uh, element. So there's oversight. He oversees, he shepherds. And then thirdly, he teaches and preaches. So again, this comes back to that one ability that's mentioned in first Timothy chapter three of all that list of character qualities. There's only the one ability that's mentioned. There's only the one skill that he needs. And that is the ability to teach. Well, Paul in, uh, in Titus Chapter 1, we already read it. He, he develops that same idea more. Paul, the same author of First Timothy and of Titus. He develops that same idea more of what it means to be able to teach. And this is what he says in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. He must hold, to, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. To give instruction 
which is just a positive thing, laying out what we believe and why we believe it, and here it is, but then also to rebuke those who contradict, to, to point out those doctrinal flaws that needed to be pointed out, that are significant, where those things are pointed out. It's not only the presentation of the, of the truth, but it's the presentation of the truth in contrast to error sometimes. He must have the ability. He must hold to the word firmly and have the ability to rebuke in those contexts, those who contradict the sound doctrine that he has been teaching. And so you see that he ha- must have that ability. He, he must have that skill. And there are, uh, that's demanding, by the way. That's demanding to, to be able to do that and do so well and to be able to rebuke and not, remember, throw off all of the character, uh, the relational character aspects. You know, if, if I'm able to rebuke, but I do so with a closed fist, shaking it in your face, I, I, I've, already, I've already blown all these relational things, right? If I'm always picking fights, I'm looking for someone to rebuke all the time, I'm quarrelsome. You see, it's a difficult balance. It's a demanding thing. And it's important for the church that the elders have these capacities because it protects the church. Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 5, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This is what it means to rule well, is to be able to address those things, to teach well and in an appropriate manner what the Bible teaches and defend what the Bible teaches against error and to do so in an appropriate way with an appropriate heart. The elder teaches and preaches, and that is a large aspect of the shepherding that he does. That is a large aspect of the oversight that he gives. So there's an application here right away. Please pray for us. Pray for the elders. If, if in my reading through this you thought, oh, that's no big deal. I'm totally down with that. Then, then I didn't communicate it well or you didn't hear it well. This is demanding. This is tough. This is, this is something that, that we as elders think about a lot. It's something that we pray about a lot. So please pray for us. We are painfully aware that we're sinners, that we're short-sighted so often. We don't, we don't see the whole picture that we have our, our own hang-ups, we have our own problems. But we, we are those that according to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, we are those whom the Holy Spirit has made us overseers. And so we realize the responsibility. We realize where it comes from. So please pray for us that we would lead and that we would teach and that we would shepherd, that we would steward, that we would minister, that we would live among the flock as God would have us do. So we, we ask for your prayers for us. It's, uh, it's not easy, and if we were to do it in our own strength, we would fall flat on our face and we would take the church with us. So we look to Christ, and we trust in Him, and we would ask you to pray for us. There's a second aspect of application for us. And this is a little bit like preaching to the choir because you are here. You are here today. I know some of you are uh, present via video and, and live stream or maybe you're watching it later. But the exhortation is this. This is the household God has given us. This is the way God has given us to protect us, to provide for us, to teach us, to feed us, to care for us. So take refuge in the household of God as God has designed it. This is where we are cared for and taught and fed and encouraged and led and corrected and matured. 
This is where we receive those things. Outside of here, we don't receive those things. And I don't just mean outside of this room. I know we're in uh, circumstances where people uh, feel a strong need to attend uh, uh, virtually and, and are, are watching via video. And we praise God for those, those kinds of uh, technology that would make that possible. But, but the goal is for us to be together, for us to be with one another, to, to look at your smiling faces or your weeping faces and be able to address you and minister with you accordingly. That it, we can't, can't really fellowship. It's difficult to fellowship over Zoom or something like that. And you do that when you have to, etc. I understand that. It's better to be together. It's better to be together. We need to be able to see each other face to face. And so take refuge in the household of God as He has designed it. This is where we are discipled. Don't, don't be a sheep without a shepherd. It's a common thing in our day for people to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I love Jesus. I really don't like the church. I don't want anything to do with the church. That's a problem. First of all, um, the church is the bride of Christ. And, uh, you know, what husband would allow someone to speak ill of his wife? And yet, so often in our day, people have no problem uh, saying they love Jesus, but they, they can't stand his wife. That's a problem. That's a problem. We need to take refuge. We need to not be a sheep without a shepherd out on our own. No Lone Ranger Christians. That's, that's extremely problematic. That opens you up to all manner of temptation, all manner of difficulty. You've removed yourself from, from protection, from correction, from nourishment. When you do that, I realize I'm speaking to the choir here because you are here. And I appreciate that. In our day and age, I think it may be easier for people to uh, feel like it would be okay to be a, uh, a sheep without a shepherd because, um, you know, they, they don't really need to go in person. They, they you know, regardless of the uh, COVID and sickness and vulnerability and all that kind of stuff, they, they really just like that other preacher better that they can dial. And he's across the country, I know, but you can dial him up on your phone and you can listen this afternoon to what he preached this morning. And that's almost as good, right? And he's, he's a better preacher. He, he, he talks longer than this guy does, right? Are there preachers that talk longer than me? <laughs> one? There's one, yeah. <laughs> he's about to get fired too, probably. <laughs> or he talks shorter than this guy. Like he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, you know, beat around the bush so much. Or, or there's more theology. I really like listening to this other guy because there's so much more theology packed in. Or I like listening to this other guy because there's not so much stinking theology. He just tells me practically what I need to, right? You can dial in whatever your heart desires. I like my burgers from over here and my fries from over here. Thank you. We can do that nowadays. You can, you can take your little phone in your, in your hand and you can go listen to, to whomever. And there are great preachers out there who, who are outstanding that, that I would love to learn from, that, that we would love to be more like. There are fabulous preachers out there and they're available for you. But they don't know you. And they don't get to look in your face. And you don't get to look in their face. Yeah, through a camera, you might see their face. You don't know their lifestyle. They don't know your lifestyle. That might be even scarier. There's no relationship. A shepherd two time zones away cannot shepherd sheep here. We have to have that kind of relationship. And so take advantage of great preachers. I, I like to l listen to certain preachers. 
I like to take advantage of them, but they, they cannot take the place of the preached word by the elders on a Sunday morning. They can't do that. They can't look into your life. You can't look into theirs. But we can look into each other's lives. We are the elders that the Holy Spirit has put in this place at this time. And so we have that relationship. We get to relate to one another that way. You know my strengths and weaknesses. You're aware of them. They are known quantities for you. And vice versa. And that guy you like to dial up, we have no idea what his strengths are. Well, we know what his strengths are because we watch them. We don't know his weaknesses. And he can't look at you and say, hey, I see a lot of strengths. And here's a weakness that you need to correct. That can't happen. But it happens here. It happens in the church. This is the way God has designed it. This is the way he has put it all together. That he has put imperfect stewards... And given them oversight of the church. Given them the shepherding responsibilities as under-shepherds in the church. This wasn't our plan. There weren't elders some time ago and said, Hey, let's, uh, let's get together and, and build a church and we will make ourselves its head and we will proceed that way. And that's why we have uh, an elder board now. Now, this was God's design. It was His idea. He thought it was a good idea to redeem sinners, to send His own Son to pay the penalty for them, for their sin, who was obedient in their place, redeem those people, make them his own children, his own household, the church of the living God. That was God's idea. And then it was his idea to take some of those redeemed sinners and give them certain responsibilities as elders. Having worked in their lives so that these character qualities become true of them, so that these relational qualities become true of them, so that this one important skill and ability becomes true of them, that they're able to teach. It was God's plan, it was God's idea that he would take sinners like that and put them in a place of responsibility for the functioning of his household. This is how the household of God is to function, with imperfect men in leadership, with imperfect men with oversight and shepherding care over that church. So take refuge in that place. Now, if, if you were some kind of a brilliant strategist and you, you were an organizational genius who, who, who could figure out the best way to put together a, a business or a corporation or an entity or, a, or an effort or whatever, I have no idea what kind of plan you might come up with because I am not that person. I don't know what you would come up with. But whatever you came up with, Whatever it was, where it differs from this, which is God's plan, we need not to be lured away into that method. God has given the household of God, the family of God, the church of the living God, as the place for us to come and take refuge. This is where we are fed. I'm fed here. This is where we are protected this is where we are taught. This is where God does his shepherding work in the hearts of his sheep is in this context. Even with weak and sinful under shepherds. This is how God ministers. And so Christian, I urge you, take refuge in the church. 
flee to the church. And as our times progress, and you, you may have different views than I do politically or economically, or you may read the last, uh, the last 10, 15, 20 years differently than I do. You may forecast the future differently than I do. But I believe that as we move forward and we encounter more and more hostility out there, and not just overt hostility like persecution, but the subtle hostility that comes from the enemy that, that would sneak in and he would, he would take a sin and he would paint it up to look like a virtue and he would say, here, do this thing. Whether it's a doctrinal thing that we are to believe, a doctrinal error that he has painted up to look like something wonderful and presented it to us, or whether it's some, some action that we would do, some, some moral issue that he would take a sinful issue and he would paint it up to look like a virtue and he would encourage us to do it. Those are the devices of the enemy. And even if the persecution doesn't ramp up, even if the persecution and the overt hostility doesn't ramp up, yet these things have definitely ramped up. And this is where you find protection from those things. The teaching of God's Word so that you would understand what is a sin painted up to look like a virtue where you would understand what a, where a doctrinal error is painted up to look like the greatest teaching. It's from the teaching of God's Word that happens in the church. And so the exhortation for us, for each of us, is to flee to the church and find refuge in the, the household that God has put in place for that purpose. I love the image Jesus uses in chapter 10 when he's talking about himself as the door to the pen, the sheepfold, and how do they get in and out? Do they come through him? And then he describes himself as the good shepherd, and what does he do with the sheep that are in that sheepfold? He takes them out to pasture. He brings them in for protection. He takes them out to find water. He brings them in to spend the night. That's how the shepherd cares for his sheep. And this friends, is how he has designed that to be for us. Right here. This is the way he takes us out to pasture. This is the way he brings us in to protect us. This is the way he takes us out to give us water. And this is how he brings us in for safety at night so we can spend the night. So don't, don't buy the lie of the world that, that uh, we don't really need the church that uh, you can find uh, good teaching, you can find better teaching on your phone and, and, and that must be a better thing. No, it's not. This is the plan God has given us. So I rejoice that you're here with me today. I, I praise God that, that uh, we get to be together. I praise God that we're able to be together in these weird times uh, virtually. We need to be together. This is where God has given us protection. This is where God has blessed us and given us His Word and his word to be taught to us and ministered to us. So I preach on elders, not, uh, not just because I like to talk about myself, but because I like to talk about what God has done for us, to bless us, to lead us, and to protect us. And this, folks, is it. Let's cling to it. Let's pray. Father, we maybe don't think enough about how you have designed the church to be. Maybe we don't think enough about uh, what it means that we are the bride of Christ. Uh, 
Maybe we don't think enough about about uh, what your word says about how church ought to be done and what ought to, um, who ought to be in leadership or, or how it ought to function, what role it plays in our lives, how important it is. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these passages. And, and I thank you for the truth that the church is vital. This is where you minister to us most clearly. This is where you minister to us in the fashion, in the order, with the safeguards that you have provided. We get fed, we get watered, we get protected, we get bound up when we have injuries. This is where we have safety. This is where we are built up in strength to go forth and minister in a world that is becoming increasingly and in different ways hostile to the message of the gospel. Father, I pray for your blessing on each one here, and I pray for your blessing on Parkside Bible Fellowship. I pray for your blessing on each gospel-proclaiming church in our community, that they would teach your word clearly, and thus you would minister to your people. Father, we rejoice in this salvation that we have in Christ. We rejoice in what he's done for us, that he has taken our sin upon Himself, and He's given us His righteousness in, in its place. So we, by faith in Christ, stand before You at peace with You, fully at peace, fully righteous before You because of Him. And we get to do so together. We ask for Your blessing. In Jesus' name, Amen. This is from First Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And one way we want to bless you and one way we want to show love is where there is a family going to be up front to pray with you. If you need assistance in prayer, you want to praise God for something, take advantage of that, please. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.